0: Thanks for joining us today for the Post Traumatic Faith Podcast, a place where trauma, hardship, and challenge meet faith and hope for the future. Here is your host, Jill Riley.
1: Welcome to Post Traumatic Faith. Season three has arrived. I am so excited to share with you this season new guests, new topics, and some great conversations. So tune in every week on Fridays. We will have a new episode. Also this season, we will celebrate our hundredth episode. So stay tuned for that. Just happens to fall on my birthday, October 28th. So we will have a big celebration. Thank you so much for joining us. And here's today's guest. Welcome to Post Traumatic Faith. This is Jill Riley, and today we are joined by Paulette Buchanan. Paulette, welcome. Thank
0: you. It's good to be
1: here. It's awesome to have you here all the way from Northeast Tennessee, huh?
0: Yep. Yeah.
1: Wonderful. How long have you lived there?
0: Uh, we moved here about eight and a half years ago. We were actually advised by victim advocates up in Connecticut, where we were originally from, my husband and I, um, to move because we could not get any kind of enforcement of law with the aggressive stalking that my estranged brother was putting me through.
1: Okay. Interesting. Interesting. Well, let me tell you a little bit about Paulette and then we'll get into the story. Paulette is a former educator who has taught primary, secondary and college level courses. She also worked in the Navy Education Office on the Groton, Connecticut submarine base. She has worked her communities as a volunteer for over 40 years. And since 2007, she's worked alongside other victims and legislatures and in an effort to bring about change in the law to better protect individuals and society. Paulette is a member of the International Cultic Studies Association. In November 2019, she gave a presentation, Legislative Action as a Part of the Healing Process at ICSA's Santa Fe, New Mexico Conference. And she was a table talk uh, moderator on the topics cults and the law. For more information, you can visit her at stopabusivelawsuits.com and stopreligiousfrauds.com. And we will put those links on on our show notes. So,
0: And also my other website, which is for my book, fightingforjusticebook.com.
1: Great. We will do that. Um, I'm just making a note here. Okay. <clears throat> so anyway, so you've been there for about eight and a half years. And um, where did you grow up at?
0: I grew up completely in Connecticut. My, okay. I was born and raised there. I was actually born on, in the Navy hospital, because my dad was retired Navy, had served 20 years, and um, big, strong Navy community and everything, people from all over the country, really. My dad was from New York City and Long Island, and my mom was from a little tiny village along the Mississippi River in Illinois. Uh, she joined the Army, and... Uh, through the military, basically, even though my dad was in the Navy and she was in the Army, they met at, at some kind of military function um, mm-hmm. back in the early 50s and, um, and then obviously got married. Um, I, I was born um, somewhat um, the youngest of my oldest four brothers. Okay. That makes any sense. Is, um, he's about seven years older than I am. And then eight years for the third oldest, uh, nine years for the second oldest, and then about 10 years, a little over 10 years for the um, oldest of my brothers. Um, and I basically came in, I they basically have resented me since my birth. Mm. Um, and so, you know, I, there was always, when you're younger like that, there's always that distance, you know, they were in like...
1: Right, because age difference, seven years is a big difference.
0: It really is. When you're younger, it definitely is Um, as you're you're growing older and everything else. There had always been tension with my brothers. Um, They beat up on each other very regularly. You know, family dynamics can be like that. I mean, you know, siblings can go at each other and everything else like that. But um, as they got older and um, drugs and alcohol entered into the picture with a few of them early on, um, it just got more and more volatile, um, attacking my parents Um, just basically out of the blue, beating each other up, uh, beating me up sometimes. Um, I, I learned to basically, um, yell real loud and, uh, run real fast, try to hit back real hard. But, um, you know, I was just a little girl, um, had a lot of uh, interactions more with spending time with my, my friends and their families. Um, we just, it's strange because we just kind of grew up in a separate household in one sense, Mm -hmm. um. I, You know, there were good times. Anybody in an abusive relationship will point to there were good times. But the problem is you never know when they're going to explode. Um, They've been and talking with my mother before she passed away and talking, trying to understand the family dynamics even better, to try to distance myself and look at it as an adult. um, Talking down through the years with um, other family members who remember my brothers before I was born. They've always been extremely selfish, extremely narcissistic. And it really boils down to, it's about power and control. Mm -hmm. They've always sought to control the other brothers um, and me and our parents and their peers and their teachers and later their bosses. They all have criminal records, mostly for violence against women. My parents were not Mm. violent with each other. I I make up. I was just
1: gonna I was just gonna ask, you know, where is this, where is this rooted from?
0: You know, it's funny because um, genetics is is a crapshoot. And there are members on both sides, my mother's family and my father's family, really good, hardworking people, well respected, good reputations. And then there are the black sheeps who are just so horrible. Toward other people, that um, my my dad's father, for example, um, he was basically a psychopath. He was malevolent. Everybody in the family stayed away from him. Um, he was very abusive toward my father and toward his mother. They ended up divorcing, which is rather uncommon for um, you know devout uh, Catholic Orthodox families at that time, back in the early twentieth um, century, um, and. Yet all the other family members were perfectly fine. And they stayed away from my dad's father, my grandfather, mm-hmm. because he was just so malevolent, um, an alcoholic. Um, there are other family members that never had any kind of um, drug alcohol problems type of thing. But he did. Um, his mother, my great grandmother, was very antisocial. Um mm-hmm. So I think, you know, genetically, it got kind of passed down, unfortunately. And, um, you know, my father never got fired from any jobs like my brothers have. Um, my my grandfather, my dad's father, uh, he flitted from job to job. He basically had his own businesses because I don't think anybody hired hire him. Um, but he was just very abusive. And mm-hmm. uh, on my mother's side, her parents were, were, were okay, um, especially her father. Um, But she had two uncles. One was actually imprisoned for the criminally insane after he had raped children. Hmm. Like I said, everybody else, family, farmers, teachers, one was mayor of a town. Um, You know, I talked to um, some of these family members on both sides of the family and um, especially on my dad's side of the family back in the uh, 80s. I remember talking to my great aunts who were the they were the sisters to my grandfather, my dad's father. And when they would describe him, even at that time, it's as if they were describing my brothers, especially. Interesting. When they were. And so you get these traits passed on. And as a teacher, I have seen that in my students where I get a family member. And, you know, it's, it's kind of bad because there are some teachers who say, oh, you know, watch out for that one because they're the sibling of so-and-so. And it's like, you know what? I went through that as a child where my brothers had such a horrible reputation among the teachers that when I got into those grades, some of the teachers treated me like, you know, with, with suspicion, like, am I going to be just as nuts and malevolent as they are? And it's like, no, I had to prove myself. I had one, actually teachers told me you are nothing like your brother's It's probably the best compliment <laughs> I ever got. I worked hard. I got good grades. I um, yeah, just total opposite. And I've, I've always kept it in mind as a teacher that I would not ever judge a sibling of somebody else because of that, because I knew what it felt like. Let each one
1: stand on their own merit.
0: Exactly. And you know, everybody came to me a blank slate you know, and I, I had students, they you would never even know they were related to their sibling. Sometimes it didn't even look like them and they were full siblings. They were not adopted or anything. They were full siblings and yet they could have been so different from each other. And you just kind of judge people based upon who they have presented themselves to be rather than who their family members are. So, it, yeah, it's, it is something that has obviously shaped me in the way I've right. gotten through my adult. Life as well as an educator.
1: So, you mentioned there was mental illness in the family. Did you feel like your parents had any um, lingering mental illness that had um, kind of passed down through their family?
0: I definitely think because, again, my dad was abused um, by his father. Um, And again, he had loving family members who I think offset that. But at the same time, it's your own father, you know. And I think that definitely left um, trauma on him. I think he battled with depression and insecurity. Um, It didn't help matters that he was captured um, on Corregidor during World War II and served time in a Japanese prison of war camp and was treated absolutely brutally, nearly died, um, and uh, came back to the States. I think he only weighed like 85 pounds. He was about 5'8". Normally, you know, 160 pounds, 165, something like that. So that trauma, the trauma from his father, and then the trauma from the prisoner of war experience. Um, When he died in a coma, I was 10 years old, he got cancer. Um, I think, honestly, it was related to the fact that the Japanese prisoner of war camp was near Hiroshima, Nagasaki. Uh, Nobody else in the family had cancer. Um, but he got it, and it it just spread all throughout his body relatively quickly. And he was in a coma, sort of in and out of it. And uh, my mother was there with him. I was not at that age allowed to be in the hospital. But she told me later he kept crying out. He kept speaking in Japanese. He learned Japanese in the camps. And he kept crying out for a Japanese newspaper because he was hoping that finally the Allies The war tried- it ended, Red Cross was coming and all that stuff. So it it clearly left a mark on him. Um, Part of it, you know, um, the Eastern European man, (laughs) um, you know, discipline is foremost in the family. And I think that there's sometimes a thin line between abuse and discipline. Right. I think there were too many times um, my mom had to jump in and say, stop it. You can't beat them like this you know and even though they were would oftentimes start it, they would like provoke my dad my brothers would. Um, you know it was it was a bad situation. it was it's no fun to see your brothers beating up on each other and I mean fist flailing um, shoving my mother into the wall. she was a very petite woman she was about five to wait about on average about 110. 100, so she was hmm. should And uh, they didn't get their way. They just, as teenagers, they, you know, would turn violent on her. Um, And they turned violent on my dad. And I think really because my brothers probably reminded my father of his father and had not resolved these issues, you know, they definitely should have gotten counseling. Um, My mother, she, her parents divorced when she was young during the depression and um, they my My grandfather was a very passive, very nice guy, mm-hmm. but I believe that based upon the symptoms, my mother's mother, my grandmother probably had m s and if you know anything about m s oftentimes they can go through dramatic mood swings um, and of course, just the physical aspect of it with the ailments that go with with m um, s she really became my mother 's caretaker at a very early age, and mm-hmm. uh, it was very difficult for her. Um, I think both my parents battled with depression. I, there's no doubt in my mind they both did. There just wasn't a lot of psychological help during this right. time. You know? right. and, and I mean, even now there are so many cutting edge things that people are trying to delve into to figure out, you know, what is the best way to treat something like, like depression? I mean, you know, It's understandable if people are in a bad situation, they should be depressed. If they're slap happy and silly about it, I think that would be a problem. Right. I think, you know, there is an appropriate response to it, but then it gets to the point where it becomes crippling.
1: Right. Well, if you look at the history of of mental health advocacy, we really didn't get into that until after World War II and start, I mean, the first DSM um, for mental illnesses wasn't even published until 1980. And so, you know, my psychiatrist keeps on, has always said, you know, Jill, we're dealing with a rudimentary medicine here in comparison to many others. So, I mean, I think if you put that in perspective in time, you know, you can really see what a difference difference, um, you know, how much we've jumped ahead and trying to figure this out, but we have a long ways to go.
0: And absolutely. And I think too, you know, a lot of, you know, whether you're dealing with Freud or Skinner or whoever, they really didn't get into the spiritual aspect. I mean, we are a whole person. body, soul, and mind. And you really have to deal with the whole person. And, you know, a lot of them were actually anti-religious and all that. But it's interesting. I heard this one thing about Freud, where he said the patients that actually have a better time of coping with things are the ones who go to confession with their priest. (laughs) Oh, interesting. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, it is an aspect that we can't ignore our spiritual. Absolutely.
1: Absolutely. So, what part did faith play in your upbringing?
0: Well, you know, it's interesting. My mother was Protestant and my dad was Catholic and I do meet old world Catholic. Um, and we were brought up at least um, before I came along. They kind of went back and forth on the religious issue. There was some strife about that. Um, and at one point, it was one of the issues that almost led to them getting divorced. Um, they were almost ready to sign the divorce papers. And then they realized, no, that, you know, they, they did love each other and they wanted to work it all out. Um, By the time I came around, they had reached a sort of an exhausted detente, as I write my book, about the religious issue. And so my mother did not go to church, um, but she did teach me and my father did to pray. Her father was um, pretty religious. And by that time, her mother had passed away. Um, Both of my father's parents had passed away. In fact, his mother passed away when he was 15. Um, somewhere around the 15, 16, somewhere around in there. And uh, so I was brought up Catholic initially. Um, We didn't go to church a great deal, but we did go on occasion. Um, And so that kind of formed my my understanding of God and of praying. I I honestly cannot point to a particular time when I don't remember praying. Mm -hmm. So it must have been taught to me fairly early on. Um, And so – that kind of formed my relationship. After my father died, my mother started taking me to a Baptist church. Now that she felt more comfortable doing that without causing any friction with my dad. I always wanted to go back to Catholic church, but, you know, being young and everything, you know, where my mother went and uh, we went pretty regularly. Um, And, you know, going through the teenage teenage angst years and, and trying to find my, my purpose. My mother had gotten remarried. He was also Catholic, but he, honestly, he had his father was an alcoholic and um, he hit my mom's second husband had a lot of mood swings. He mm-hmm. clearly had some, some issues and yeah, it caused a lot of problems in, in terms of, you know, who am I, you know, where's my right. purpose in life and everything. And fortunately I had some some good friends during school, uh, junior high school into senior high school, and um, you know there was basically a come to Jesus moment where it's like, okay, some of my other friends that I've known all the way since elementary school are getting to drugs and alcohol and basically acting like my brothers. I didn't want to be around that. I write in the book about there was one time uh, they were all sitting around and um, and it was also my my dad de- my stepfather's daughters. They were smoking pot and everything. And I tried it, hacked my lungs out, couldn't stand it, felt like an idiot. And it was really actually pretty depressing because I thought everybody else is either stoned or acting stoned. This is not me. This, right. I, this is not me. This would be my brothers, but it's not me. And so I I just really had, um, I was kind of a nerd- Growing up anyway, I had deep thoughts about, you know, what is my place? We, you know, where am I going in life and what what really matters and where is God and does he exist at all? And so I think at that point, um, that's when I really had a, a prayer time and um, confessing my sins and and saying, you know, I, I've got to choose a different way. And I need your help, God. I really do. And um, and I started going to church with some of my friends and stuff. Um and that's really, I think that was a turning point when I was 14 years old of saying, I've got to make a choice or I have the potential of turning out like my brothers or right. like from my friends who have gone down, you know, gone over to the dark side with drugs and alcohol and promiscuous sex and everything else. So
1: so that negative that negative influence came out to be a positive impact in your life.
0: Absolutely. And, um, you know, I've had to deal with um, other family members, younger family members, my nephews, nieces, and some of my students. And some of them have come from absolutely horrific families. And I have told them, you know, you can learn even from this bad stuff. And I would tell them a little bit about my own background and say, you have choices to make. It may be more challenging for you to make those choices, but you will always have the support of good people who will help you. In those good choices you make to not continue this pattern, because Absolutely. you see where it leads, and um, you're only going to be damaging yourself. You know, I can I, I can understand the anger, I can understand the depression, I can understand the the frustration and the confusion that goes with all of that, but you you've got to seize control as best you can, of your own choices and say, you know what, I I can do better than this. I can do better than what I had been doing. I can do better than what I've seen other people do and go down that path and even try to justify it. Absolutely. It's It's such an
1: important message for people to understand that they can can break the cycles of of abuse and, and many other things and even of addiction. And I know it's a disease and, um, and I know mental illness is, is, uh, is a disease, but, um, there are some things that we have, we have absolute choice over.
0: Yeah. And that should be a good thing that we take, you know, heart in. Right. Um, and by the grace of God, I mean, honestly, you know, there was, there was a crucial time in my life. I could have gone down the same dark path and, um, You know, the funny thing of it is I got drunk once when I was, what, 12, 13 years old? I think I was 12. And uh, I write about it in the book. And the bed spins and the hangover, the headache... It, and I told myself, I vowed to myself, as I held my head in my hands, I am never doing this to myself. Right, again. this
1: is not any fun. It
0: doesn't <laughs> hurt. hurt too much.
1: So you have you have a brother that's gotten involved in a cult that has um, that has affected your life deeply. Tell me a little bit about that.
0: Yeah. um, The interesting thing of it is my brothers and maybe, you know, it comes down to the strife between my my parents about the religious issue, what church to go to, Protestant, or Catholic, that may have had a little bit of influence in there or maybe some some degree of influence into their sort of anger and resistance against anything religious. But I also think it goes to their baseline personality. They don't like anybody telling them what to do, including the almighty. But ironically, as my um, third oldest brother got into, um, he, he got into sort of a religious spiel because he was interested in three Jewish Christian girls who were around my same age which is rather creepy. As I write in my book, he, he never seemed to date women his own age. He, he went back to the teenage girls mm-hmm. and, um, that were, again, around my same age. Um, one was younger, uh, two were just like a year or two older than I am. And um, I think because he thought he could persuade them to date him, they, that he took on this religious spiel. And he knew what words he learned the language, he learned the vocabulary, the behavior pretty quickly. But there was no depth to it, it was just another ploy to try to control. Mm -hmm. Um, and and there's a difference between conversion or control, you know. Um, and a lot of people will use religion to control people. Um, I have frequently told people that when somebody becomes a cult leader, like my brother has become of his own cult, um. Their primary goal is to replace God in people's lives. They want to become like God. They want to destroy any faith you have in a good, loving, just God. And they Mm -hmm. want to replace that God with themselves as being authoritarian and always knowing the truth and always knowing what, you know, you need to do with your life. And, And that really is everything else that cult leaders do to destroy people's lives comes from that one motivation, whether, you know making money, um, having sex with their followers, whatever it is, um, it comes from that idea that they must eliminate the concept of a good, loving, just God in people's minds. Mm -hmm. And they must replace that God with themselves. Um, And that's really what he set out to do. Um, He ended up marrying a girl who, again, was a teenager. She was only um, about a year older than I am. Uh, She graduated a year before I did and from high school, and they got married basically only a few months after she graduated high school. By that time, he was 24 years old. And um, so, again, you know, there's that age difference, and she was very dependent upon him. They had had a very tumultuous relationship, uh, both prior to and especially after their marriage, not too surprising. And he ended up uh, knowing somebody who came from Georgia who was involved in a very militaristic type of like uh, doomsday type cult, mm-hmm. uh, the fortress church. And um, I was in my senior year of high school at that point, And he did everything he could to get me to quit high school and join this cult. And I just said, absolutely not. <laughs> and in fact, we, my mother and I tried everything we could to try to get him out of there. And uh, my other brothers were off on their own. They, they were just kind of doing their own thing and stuff. Um, and, of course, the marriage failed. They had three children. They uh, really incurred a lot of abuse from my my brother, his first wife, and the cult. Uh, they believed in paddling children over the least little infraction. Uh, if he yawned, they would, they would discipline the child if the mm. child yawned, things like that. Um, and... He had told me originally he was going to become a leader in that cult, but that didn't work out. Um, And he ended up turning against the cult, um, went through a divorce. At one point, he convinced my mother and I, and I think it's wishful thinking on our part, you know, because you you want to see something. You want to see a person get their act together. And he knew just the right words to say, cried his crocodile tears. And um, primarily, we got involved, my mother and I, to try to save the kids. They were very young. And they were being abused. And we did not know because, you know, he's all the way down in Georgia. We're all the way up in Connecticut. We had no idea that he was also abusing the kids. Mm -hmm. There are just so many lies on both sides that um, it just became so overwhelming. And uh, he did end up winning um, custody for a time of his kids because it all came out in the court proceedings about, what the cult was doing, and his ex-wife was still very much involved with it. Eventually, within a few years, the cult totally collapsed in and on itself. People turned on each other, which is what typically happens in cults. Um, and uh, the leadership split, and so they just all collapsed on each other. Um, eventually, it seemed as though his ex-wife; she was she kind of became the lesser of two evils. She did kind of get her act together somewhat, to some degree. Um, and we helped her win back custody of her daughter. And then her um, her oldest son came back to live with her as well because he couldn't stand being around his father. A lot of abuse, a lot of abuse of the court system. Um, my brother started filing what are called pro se lawsuits, meaning uh, it's Latin for self-represented, didn't hire an attorney, f- and filed these lawsuits against his ex-wife over and over and over again and against her second husband over and over and over again. Um, he had been arrested for beating her up and beating up a neighbor who tried to come to his ex-wife's assistance. It was just one thing after another. There were, I don't know, close to a dozen lawsuits that he filed against her until finally the court said enough. Um, and basically said, you're not going to be doing this without court approval anymore. Um, a few years after that, um, let me kind of backtrack a little bit. When we realized my brother was um, betraying our trust, my mother and I, my mother spent about $15,000 of her retirement savings getting an attorney to help him during his custody hearing of uh, when he went through divorce. I also loaned him a, a few thousand dollars, most of it in check form. He refused to pay back either one of us, even though he had promised to. And I did take him to small claims court, won, of course, a judgment against him, and Soon after that, while he was under investigation for child abuse, um, he fled the state of Connecticut to parts unknown. We had no idea where he went. Um, a few years later, his ex wife found him living in Texas. Um, so there was a 10 year statute of limitations from 1990 to 2000 for that judgment that I won against him in small claims. I chose not to even pursue it. It was under $1,700. I just said, you know what? I just, he's so violent. He had attacked me. Um, was just, he was so violent and so unstable. I said, I want nothing more to do with him. What yeah. I'm happy is $1,700 almost. And actually it's more than that because some of it was not in check form. Um, and I wanted nothing more to do with him. Basically the day after the statute of limitations ran out on the 1990 small claims judgment I won against him, he started putting up websites Claiming I'm the child abuser, claiming that I'm a domestic terrorist, um, claiming all kinds of crazy things. My mother was a child abuser. Um, His ex-wife is a slut, you know, and all these things and and attacking churches and attacking uh, individuals. Um, He schmoozed with some of his former friends that he knew from back in the 70s and 80s, got into their lives with all kinds of. Basically, pro- proclamations of support for all the things they were involved with and everything else, pro life stuff, everything. And then he turned on them and he basically only weaseled into their lives to find out information about them and then started stalking and threatening them.
1: Do you um, think there was something in his life that uh, appealed to him about the cult, that something was missing and that the cult provided? Or do you think there was mental illness involved or is it a both and?
0: I think it's both. I think, again, religion is a very useful tool for people who are pathological. And, Mm -hmm. um, you know, there is a difference between pathological and psychotic. A pathological person can be extremely intelligent and they know exactly what they're doing is wrong. A psychotic can really honestly believe that there are monkeys climbing across the wall and pink elephants in the living room. They can really believe that. But a a pathological person knows how to. They're actually very good about judging people and looking for weak points. Yes. Um, this is, if you look at every cult leader, Jim Jones or wherever, you know, you look at these people. I think they would. Many of them would qualify as being pathological. They will lie about themselves. They they do this as a means of control. They are addicted to control. Control and power are their their choice of substance abuse. Um, you know, my my third oldest brother who runs his own cult now, he has had problems with alcoholism. So I think substance abuse is definitely an issue that gets in there. Like I said, all my brothers have had issues with substance abuse to one degree or another, and all of them have had criminal records. Um, some of them, actually, I think all of them have had um, involuntary mental health treatment um, ordered against them. Um, so, I mean, it's just... I think there was something that was always there, even when they were very young, Um, based upon some of the things my mother had told me, some other family members had told me that they always felt they were better than other people, which is another sign of a narcissistic psychopath, that they always felt they were right, even when proven wrong, that they always resorted to lies that they always found it very funny to pull the wool over people's eyes to deceive them and even cause them harm. I have seen my brothers more than once laughing hysterically when they were either scheming to do harm to a person or actually had accomplished doing harm to a person. And um, and again, my father never treated my mother with disrespect. In fact, he had to defend them against defend my mother rather against my brother's when they got older and resorted to violence against her and against him. Um, it's it just, it's a very frustrating thing. And I, um, I make mention in my book early on uh, that I had a classmate um, in high school whose older sister had just gotten kicked out of their house. She was in her early 20s. And um, she was telling me that as a young child, this older sister had tried to drown her in the, the family swimming pool. She had always hated her little sister and she was just uncontrollable in her anger and in her violence and her malevolence. She was always scheming to do something harmful to either her parents or to her little sister, who was my classmate. And, um, you know, then I felt comfortable telling her about um, one of my brothers, um, my second oldest brother trying to strangle me um, shortly before my mother kicked him out of the house when I was in high school. And it's just, there are probably so many factors that go into this, but all along, my brothers have admitted when confronted, they know their actions are wrong. They know they would never want anyone doing this to them, but it's all about power and control. That Mm. is the driving force for why they do what they do. And it's like any other addiction. There is obviously the best I can figure Cause I can't relate to it. I, you know, I've spent my life doing good things. I, I wanted to become a teacher when I was in elementary school. I've always had this mindset of reaching outside of myself to help other people. Um, my mother was the same way, um, more so she, than my dad, but my dad, you know, he got involved with stuff and, and PTA meetings he would go to and other types of town activities he would go to and got involved with art and photography as hobbies and things like that. Um, but my brothers everything they get involved with has to do about uh, power and control the scams that they've run online um, every time they get arrested um, you know for things like impersonating the police it's always about power and control um,
1: so what and- gave you what gave you the courage to begin to tell your story about them and begin to research cults and and all of that what what turned that corner for you
0: yeah um You know, going through, he put us through nine lawsuits, my brother did, starting in 2004 and finally ending um, just last year in 2021. Um, Nine lawsuits. Uh, Two of them included um, all of my brothers. They were trying to exhume my mother's body in the cemetery to take control of it. Yeah. That's how much addicted to power and control they are and making me pay for being born and born female. Uh, again, some of the things they used to say when I was younger, it's like, you know, life was so much better before you came along, you know, things like that. But what really, um, and talking to so many attorneys about how can we do that? You know, what can we do? What can we do? Um, one civil rights attorney in Connecticut told me that She said, you need to write a book about this. And originally she said, you need to have somebody else write about this. And I said, well, you know, I have my degree in history. I got my master's degree and I've written a lot of, you know, done a lot of research and, and, you know, write pretty well. She said, well, then you need to write a book about this. You need to tell the world about, first of all, these are real serious problems that we have a collapsed mental health system and we have a collapsed justice system. Mm -hmm. Um, She practiced law on both the Connecticut and the New York side. She was over in Western Connecticut. She said, as bad as New York is, she said, I'd rather practice law in New York than Connecticut because it is so corrupt. And um, it is across the board. Uh, You know, what we've been through in the last 20 plus years is pretty much now what you're seeing exploding across our country, where victims of crime cannot get any justice We've had both uh, states' attorneys, which are similar to other states' district attorneys, um, tell us things like, well, if the state doesn't call it a crime, then it's not a crime. Or, you know, we have discretionary powers. Uh, we, we can, you know, choose to enforce the law or not. Um, or <laughs> things like, well, you know, yes, he's breaking the law, but no, we're not going to put out the money. We've been told that by, again, both state and federal authorities, So is is
1: telling your story part of taking that power back, your own personal story back?
0: It is in a way, but it's also to try to help other people because we felt so alone. It's like, how many other people are going through this? And we first started experiencing um, encounters with other victims when we started contacting our legislators to try to get more protective laws going in the state of Connecticut. And we met other victims who are also going through this. And the point of my book, it was to encourage other people to say, you are not alone and you have a voice and you have truth on your side. And even if it may take forever and a day to try to affect some change, you at least have the voice to say, this is wrong. It's unacceptable. And, you know, we're still working with our legislators here in Tennessee now to try to get some better laws passed. But it is it's a hard, long slog. Um, You know, there's a reason why we have the expression that something takes as long as an act of Congress, because Mm -hmm. it is, you know, it is—you know—it just they have their own agendas. They have special interest groups that get in there and everything. But we're not giving up. And um, we want to encourage other people. Make your voices heard.
1: What do you most want people to learn from your story?
0: Um, I want them to know how broken our system is so that if this, and most likely it will at some point in time happen to them where they have crimes committed against them, you obviously a complete stranger can do that, that they should not have any high expectations of getting any justice um, first, it's important to know the realities of the world we live in and that we need to hold our legislators feet to the fire to say this is happening to real life people. And our tax dollars are paying for these judges to sit there and not take these laws seriously. Everybody should be held to the same standard. These laws are not supposed to be based upon their enforcement. is not supposed to be based on political factions. It's supposed to be based on just a simple right thing to do. We elect our legislators, our legislators pass bills into law, the governor signs them, and it's up to the third branch of government, the courts, to simply enforce them. And many times they're not doing that. Um, It's important to understand we've had so many people ask us, well, you know, why don't you just get them committed into a mental hospital? We don't have mental hospitals anymore. Not really. We don't have an effective mental health system anymore. As abysmal as some of the mental health hospitals were so many years ago, I I talked to a retired uh, mental health nurse a few years back before I wrote my book, or as I was writing my book, um, and she told me they ran a Compassionate unit. They did not allow bad things to happen to people either by the staff or to one another. And they kept it very orderly. They kept it um, cheery. They did everything they could to provide the best care for people suffering from severe mental health issues. Um, And she said some of them, they were crafty, they were sneaky, they were pathological. Others were just outright psychotic. They could not function in society. And she said, we provided a really good amount of care for them. We provided them safety, you know, and from other people and from you know, themselves. Um, and then when the mental health system, and I, I go into this in one of my chapters in my book, The Collapse of the Mental Health System, is that when the state started figuring, oh, well, you know, it, it's going to save us so much money if we don't have these state-run mental hospitals anymore or have laws that allow people to be put in private mental health hospitals, And they just slashed everything. And my friend, retired woman, who was the mental health nurse, she said, we wrote to our legislators, we contacted them. Don't do this. You're sending these vulnerable people out onto the streets. They're either going to be attacked or they will resort to attacking people. This is going to result and high crime rates and bad again, things. Yeah. And, 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 you know, that they are going to be committing these crimes as well. And I mean, that's what we've had the problem with, you know, 60, 70 years ago, if we lived at that time, I could get my brothers permanently committed into a, a ma- mental health facility. Um, they have shown all kinds of signs that they simply cannot function. Um, they uh, have relied upon government assistance. Well, they could get that government assistance in a well-run mental health facility. I believe they should be privatized, much like nursing homes and hospitals are. Um, people, you know, I could point to the fact that, yes, there were some very bad, abysmally bad, horribly bad mental health facilities, both private and public but you could say the same thing about nursing homes and hospitals today. Right? Do we right. shut down all the hospitals? Do we shut down all the nursing homes? No. We try to hold them accountable to basic state standards, to basic levels of care. And we again, we try to hold them accountable to that. And we need to create a really good mental health system that will help people who simply, and I mean severe mental health problems. They just cannot keep a job. They cannot function in society without alarming people. Um, they, they just cannot. It's like forcing a three-year-old out on the street. Right. They don't have the wherewithal to take care of themselves and act in a way that's not destructive to themselves or other people. Absolutely. So I bring that point up in my book as well, that you know, if we'd had a compassionate mental health system, my husband and I would not, ha- and, and so many other people um, affected by my brother's would not have been dragged through all the years of hell that we have been dragged through.
1: Well, I'm glad that you are able to redeem your story um, somewhat by being able to share um, the name of the book is fighting for justice. The website is fightingforjusticebook.com. And um And I just really pull it. I just, I thank you for turning your struggle into helping others and, and making the world a better place for all of us. So thank you.
0: Well, thank you, Jill, for the work that you're doing too. I think it's so important that um, that you and other podcasters are addressing these issues. If you enjoyed this episode, we would love it if you would leave a review on your favorite podcast platform. You can find Jill at jillreilly.com, on Facebook at jillreilly.author, Twitter at jillreilly.author, and Instagram at jillreilly.author. Also, feel free to send Jill an email at jill at jillreilly.org. Thanks for listening in, and have a great day.